This is Jeff Young, the Catholic Foodie at CatholicFoodie.com, and you're listening to episode 182 of the Catholic Foodie, Dinner Lab and Supper Clubs. Welcome, folks, to the Catholic Foodie, where food meets faith. I'm your host, Jeff Young, and today we're talking about Dinner Lab. Have you ever heard of Dinner Lab? Uh, It's in several cities in the United States, major cities like New Orleans and New York and Austin and it's kind of all over here. Los Angeles, San Francisco, Atlanta, Miami, Nashville, uh, and Washington, D.C., I believe. So several cities across the country have this thing, this, this new phenomenon called Dinner Lab. And we're going to talk about that today and what that has to do with me and you and our family meals right here at the Catholic Foodie, where food meets faith. That's right. You know, Dinner Lab is a new social dining experiment, right? It's not new necessarily in the sense of time because it's about two years old, but the concept is very new, at least in today's social milieu. Uh, it was founded by a group of foodie entrepreneurs in New Orleans about two years ago. And as Forbes magazine reports, Dinner Lab is a members-only club that hosts semi, semi-weekly dinner parties in remote locations emphasizing on bringing together new flavors, guests, and locations, and talent to each experience. The company quickly gained popularity in New Orleans with its once-in-a-lifetime dinners that include five-course tastings and eclectic combinations like pupusas at a local brewery, a Chilean tasting on a rooftop, northern Thai in a former brothel, and Cuban fare in an old candlelit church. (laughs) To me, I know... To me, it just sounds so intriguing. You know, basically the goal of Dinner Lab is to, to make eating out pure again, focusing on the food and the people that create the whole experience rather than the overwhelming choices, prices, and trends that sometimes interfere. And if you listen, take a listen real quick to this. This is the, uh, if you go to dinnerlab.com on their website, uh, they have a kind of an overview video. It's only like a minute, just over a minute long, but it gives you an idea of what this is all about. And I'm telling you folks, this is fascinating. To me, it's absolutely fascinating. Let's take a listen. What would happen if you reduce the restaurant down to its most basic elements? An interesting space? A talented chef, a group of curious strangers. Dinner Lab is the dining experience liberated. No assigned seating, no flashy table dressing, and no restaurant. Our events unite people at a common table in an engaging space with chefs cooking foods that tell their story. Good people, good food, and good drink are sometimes all you need and surprising things can happen when you break a couple rules. We don't dictate what our chefs cook, we don't designate who a member should be, and when it comes to space, we seek only to be consistently inconsistent. An evening with us is not a conventional night out. This meal will never happen again with this food, with these people, and this place. Welcome to Dinner Lab. Wow. <laughs> it's members only. The way that uh, that I understand it, I believe, and depends on what kind of market you're in. If you're in like the New Orleans, Nashville, and Austin markets, uh, the membership annual membership is a hundred bucks, and what that does is it gets you access to the calendar only. 
Um, you're able to make reservations to different uh, dinners. You can, I guess you can go during that year to as many of them as you want uh, to attend, but you, you pay for the dinner separately. And the average price is between 35 and 50 bucks for a per, per person for uh, each of those dinners. So the 100 bucks gets you in the door, so to speak. It gets you uh, access to the calendar online and gives you the ability to make those reservations. Now, if you're, if you're in a bigger market like New York, I think Los Angeles, uh, maybe San Francisco, the, uh, the annual membership fee is $175. So it really depends on what market you're in. Um, but that, that money allows them to put these things together. Right. Without that, without that subscription uh, fee, they would not have the capital they need to actually put dinners on the way they do. Now, this is uh, dinnerlab.com. That's their website. And if you go to their about page, this is what it has to say. I mean, again, I am totally fascinated by this, and I will tell you more about why I'm fascinated uh, in, in just a few minutes. But Dinner Lab is a membership-based social dining experiment that unites undiscovered chefs with adventurous diners who are looking for something different from the traditional restaurant experience. Whether it happens on the roof of an abandoned building, the floor of a paper mill, or inside a motorcycle dealership, we believe that good people, good food, and good drink are the only elements paramount to a memorable meal. Our events bring together a group of interesting strangers around a common table to share cuisine crafted by up-and-coming chefs from all over the country. We don't dictate what our chefs cook, but instead give them a platform to tell a story through, through the menu. Recipes that speak to their background or heritage, ingredients they are passionate about, or completely new dishes they've been experimenting with on days away from the restaurant. Because we keep our cuisine, our environment, and our patrons constantly in flux, each Dinner Lab event exists for one evening only. Over the course of a year, we may host up to 100 events in a single city, but no meal will ever happen in the same way, with the same food, with the same people, in the same space. Wow, that's cool. Uh, the Dinner Lab platform flips the traditional top-down restaurant experience by putting chefs at the center stage and gives our members access to the chef's table each time they attend an event. Our member community comes from various ages and backgrounds, but each one shares a desire to expand their culinary horizons in a new and interesting way with an eclectic group of other food lovers from their local area and across the country. Wow. Unbelievable. Amazing. You know, I had a conversation. I learned about this, matter of fact, just a few weeks back. I think it was maybe right before I went to Boston for the CNMC. A friend of mine who's a, a local chef, um, uh, Neely Friends, we've had her on the Around the Table Food Show, and I've talked about her here before on the Catholic Foodie. Uh, Neely and Keith, her husband Keith, they own a restaurant, Lola, uh, in Covington, where I live. It's not. It's just a few blocks down from my house, basically. But they have the restaurant. They also have a food truck, Lola De. Lola 2, right, in French. And uh, that that was, they did the filming for Eat Street, right? Eat Street Food Network show. I talked about that, I think, last episode of The Catholic Foodie. They did that just uh, a few weeks ago, right down the street. You know, that that's Neely and, and Keith. And Neely um, is a member here of uh, the dinner cl- the dinner lab a- in New Orleans. And uh, she was telling me about it. They went on a, to a dinner just uh, a week or two ago. And they, they were telling me all about it, how it was. And 
She's the one who introduced the whole idea to me. I didn't even know about it until she ta- told me about it, I guess, the week before I went to the CNMC. So I'm very fascinated, very fascinated. would love to, uh, to, to, to become a member. Rumor has it, when you go to sign up, at least, it depends on, again, which venue, right, which, which market you're in. But in New Orleans, apparently, the membership, you have a wait list right now because they capped the membership at 1,000 people. So they only want a thousand members. So you have to wait till someone drops off. And that waiting list right now is about five months long. <laughs> so I'll have a ways to go. But still, I think there's a lot here to talk about. There's a lot here to think about. Uh, and, it, and, it, and it really kind of issues a challenge to us when it comes to dining. And, and that's what I want to get to a little bit later in the show. But first, uh, you know, this I mentioned, I think, in the in the intro that... Dinner Lab has been featured by Forbes magazine, has been featured by uh, The New Yorker, has been fe- featured uh, in, in major publications across the country, but also in in local uh, publications, both online and print publications across the country. And there's a, a video that that was that went along with the um, let's see if I can find it. I mean, it was mashable on mashable. There was a video that went along with the story in, I believe it was the New Yorker. Let me see if I can pull that up real quick here. Yes, it's called Dinner Lab, A New Kind of Eating Experience. And this this video right here is about two minutes long. I'm going to play this for you. I'm going to embed these, by the way, in the show notes over at catholicfoodie.com. So if you want to see the, the videos, see the associated uh, images with this audio, you can do that. Just go to catholicfoodie.com. Uh, but I'm going to play this right now because it's fascinating the way it tells a story and gives you a better idea of what this is all about. So let's let's take a listen. When you look at the restaurant world, a lot of times there's a big disconnect between what a chef is actually preparing on a daily basis and what they actually care about. What they do is they work at a restaurant and then these chefs go home on Sunday and they prepare meals that kind of tell their story. And our hypothesis is that people want the food that tells a story. My name is Brian Bordanik. I'm our chief executive officer. Dinner Lab brings together emerging culinary talent in a city, so the number twos, threes, and fours that are at major restaurants that are kind of idling in their career and gives them a platform to cook for an eager audience. So without further ado, Mario. So basically we're doing a Colombian menu that my aunt made for me uh, every time I visited Colombia. We never use the same location twice, and we're always in a space that's not a restaurant. We kind of mess with every variable that you can possibly mess with, which basically puts kind of chaos at the center of our business model, which is really challenging, but it also makes for a really interesting product. So if they have an event, something's gonna go wrong. There's no doubt. Thank you, sir. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> Thank you all. Have a good service, guys. Thank you very much. And you have to be able to roll with those punches and think really creatively on your feet because that's what we do. People pay up front for access to the calendar and with that working capital, we're able to secure our commissary kitchen, um, our employees, all of our training and basically operate a market. And most of the primary markets in New York, LA, uh, it's $175 and in New Orleans, Austin, Nashville, it's it's $100 for access to the calendar for, for the year. We know how many people we're preparing for. We never waste food. So everything is done beforehand. We haven't actually taken funding to date. And that's kept our vision really in line with what we want to do. Your feedback that you have on your cards, we actually aggregate all of that. And then our chef for the night will sit down with our resident chef here in New York and go over how to get better. 
So our members are trying to help a chef develop a menu concept that they actually care about. And the great thing about um, the operation is that we get feedback twice a week per market. What we're trying to do is take a lean startup methodology and really put it on top of the restaurant world because if you look at how most restaurant concepts start, it's not until you cut the ribbon, open your doors, and food critics come in that you actually know what you really have there. So if you have a cool concept, let's test it. And we're not like a social dining platform, you know, we're not like trying to save the world or anything like that, but if you think about it, how often do you really dine with people outside of your social group, outside of your racial group, um, when someone who's 20 years older? And what's cool is when you use food as a common medium, you're kind of bringing people together that don't yet know they want to be friends, but will be friends. And that's been really cool. You know, on the website, uh, dinnerlab.com, they do have some uh, examples of past events. And there was one that really caught my eye uh, earlier today. It was uh, in New Orleans, and I, I don't see a date on here. I don't know when this was. Um, but it's absolutely fascinating because, you know, we have a lot of talk today, I think, across the country about, you know, farm to table and uh, trying to get back to, to nature, trying to get back to really how God made things, right? Like real vegetables, real food. And we'll talk more about real food in the next episode of The Catholic Food. It's all going to be about, you know, where has all the real food gone? <laughs> we'll talk about that. But when you talk about, uh, you know, food to table, you're talking about, I mean, not food to table, farm to table. Uh, you're talking about growing food. And, and, and minimal processing, if anything, and have it come, especially if we're talking about vegetables, fruits and vegetables, from the farm to the table. Cutting out the middleman. Don't let food sit in warehouses for weeks sometimes uh, before they get to the, 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 the consumer, but to, to get, get them there as quickly as possible. And to not um, destroy them in the process of preparing them. And I think that's what happens a lot of times is we over-process food so much that it's no longer uh, really even food. I mean, we can eat it, I guess, and sustain ourselves, but I mean, you know, carrots are good just as carrots and tomatoes, when they taste like tomatoes, are, are delicious. And so we don't need to, to, to kill them necessarily. Uh, we just need to bring them from the farm to the table. So this particular event really caught my eye. It was in New Orleans. It was called Swamp to Table. <laughs> you know, down in Louisiana, South Louisiana, we got lots of swamp, lots of bayou, lots of water. Man, we got water everywhere. It's unreal. Um, and I love it. Lots of fishing. Uh, of course, uh, you know, Louisiana is called the, the sportsman's paradise because there's just so much hunting and fishing and everything else uh, available here. Just the, the, the land uh, caters to that. And so this is, a, it was interesting. They, what they did was they, uh, they were taking the, the Brooklyn Brewery, right, beer. Uh, they brew beer, Brooklyn Brewery. And they were, they were trying to do a mashup where you're taking uh, the, the beers from the Brooklyn Brewery and pairing that with food from the swamp. And, and this, is, uh, this is what they said when they described it. They said this meal, and of course, this is verbiage that they're using to advertise prior to the event in order to uh, let their membership know what's available and, and to appeal to them to see who would want to uh, participate in this particular uh, dinner. So it says this meal will be particularly interesting as every course will be paired with one of Brooklyn Brewery's 
loggers. We're doing a New York City meets the swamp theme where all courses will be straight from the backwoods of Louisiana and delicately prepared with some of Brooklyn Brewery's finest beers, some of which you cannot get in stores. That's very interesting. Very eclectic, very uh, unique, and, and something that you can't get anywhere else. The event menu. Here's the menu. Listen to this. Now, this is all from the swamp, okay? So you got the crawfish. You have crawfish. You got quail eggs and cocote with creamy crawfish bisque. Then you can have alligator. Alligator with green onion croquette. Cilantro mayor lemon crema. Wow. And then turtle. The swamp chowder with crawfish, turtle, pork belly, rutabaga, turnips, and cornbread. And then they have the frogs. So you have all these different animals. You got the, the, the crawfish, the alligator, the turtle, the frog, catfish, and then we have strawberry, right? For the because strawberries are real big down here. We have a, a whole area, uh, Ponchatoula area that grows tons of strawberries every year. Uh, so I, I did the turtle. See the frog. You have you can have confit frog legs, uh, rapini, cabbage escabeche with turnip yogurt. Oh my goodness! Uh, catfish is going to be the cumin. Kumquat rubbed catfish grilled in banana leaf, confit kohlrabi, smothered collard greens. Wow. And then the strawberry, you have, you have grits with a Creole cream cheese flan, strawberry compote, and pecan crumble. Unreal. I mean, that's a beautiful, very unique <laughs> menu. You would be tasting things there that you probably would not get anywhere else. Uh, but boy, you talk about neat, huh? And you can do that with 75 of your closest friends or maybe a couple of close friends and 73 or whatever friends that you, you've never met before. Because <laughs> it's a big dinner, right? All these people from all over the place who who, who are going to join you for that. So that's uh, one of the um, sample menus. And I love how they do this. They actually have a video uh, on the website, dinnerlab.com, uh, where they're talking about, or they're showing, really. They don't say anything. It's just a back, some background music. I want to make sure I don't blow, blow us out here with the, with the, uh, the audio. Let me turn the volume down. But uh, you talk about neat. How do you like that? Isn't it awesome? Somebody put this uh, video together, and it's all about uh, just... Oh. All right, I'm going to pause this now. But uh, it's all about... It's, it's The video itself is just, you know, footage from the event, and they, they kind of put it together to this song. And I think the uh, the, the song that's played, actually the, the band was there on, uh, on location for uh, that dinner playing live. So... You talk about neat. Oh, my goodness. This would make a great Christmas present uh, for anybody living in those cities I mentioned earlier, uh, and maybe even me. (laughs) I'd love to be a member and to try this out. And we'll talk more about what makes this so unique and why it really kind of calls out to me in just a few minutes. First, we're going to talk about faith in the news, and we'll do that when we come back in just a moment. You heard him? You could not ask for a more noble cause than that. Sonny, true love is the greatest thing in the world. Except for a nice MLT, mutton, lettuce, and tomato sandwich when the mutton is nice and lean and the tomatoes ripe. They're so perky. I love that. 
Well, you know, just a few weeks back, I was at the Catholic New Media Conference up in Boston, and uh, one of the, 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 the most awesome parts of the day was toward the very end of the day, we had a, a short presentation from the Knights of Columbus, who were a, uh, a platinum sponsor of the, uh, the, the Catholic New Media Conference. We're very grateful to them for that. Uh, we had a short presentation where they uh, introduced to us a new documentary on Pope Francis that the Knights of Columbus uh, produced. And it was airing actually that, that week following the CNMC. It aired on, I think it was Fox Business, one of those, one of those uh, cable channels. And uh, just the, the, doc, the, the documentary is amazing. And the little, the footage that we saw, like a trailer almost, that we saw of this documentary was just incredible. It was so cool. Uh, I, was, I was out of town actually when it aired, so I did not get to see it. However, I do have news today. We're talking about food, or not, not food, faith in the news. And the news is this. Salt and Light Television is going to be airing this documentary on Sunday, November 24th. That's next Sunday. Sunday, November 24th at 9.30 p.m. and 1.30 a.m. Eastern Time, 6.30 p.m. and 10.30 p.m. Pacific. And then again on Wednesday, November 27th at 8 o'clock p.m. Eastern and 5 p.m. Pacific. So if you haven't, uh, if you if you did not catch it before, you're going to see it this time. At least you get a chance to see it this time. Salt and Light Television. I'm going to put links in the show notes to that. Also, uh, this documentary is now available on Amazon.com, and there will be a link in the show notes taking you directly to uh, Amazon.com, where you could find that trailer or find that uh, documentary. Now, speaking of trailers, I've had that on my mind because I want to remember to play the trailer for you. Let's uh, take a listen to this trailer. Annuncio Robis Gaudium Magnum Abelus Papa footage here is when he first comes out, uh, first greets the crowds in St. Peter's Square. You all know that the duty of the conclave was to give a bishop to Rome. It seems that my brother cardinals have gone almost to the ends of the earth to find him. <laughs> but here we are. <laughs> On March 13, 2013, the world was introduced to Pope Francis. He is the first Pope from the Americas, the first Jesuit, and the first to take the name Francis. Within days, he captured hearts and minds through his gestures of humility and care for the common man. This is the story of Jorge Mario Bergoglio, a man who has never swerved from the path he chose serving Christ through the poor and the outcast. A church that will not stay still. We're sure that this will be the church of Pope Francis. Pope Francis is a man of action. Del Papa Francisco, vamos a ver siempre 
esa preocupación de ir a las fronteras de la pobreza, de la de los que están más alejados de Dios. Él siempre fue una persona que tuvo mucho coraje y mucha valentía para plantearse frente a los poderosos to rise against the powerful and say what he thought. La voz de los que no tenían voz voice, era no el Cardenal Bergo. That was Cardinal Bergoglio. Un hombre de una especie de santo del desierto y un gran gestor brillante. Que tiene tanta importancia para el His testimony of life is a beautiful example for all of us. And I think the fact that he had the inspiration of choosing the name Francis, thinking of St. Francis of Assisi, is a call for all of us to see the importance of uh, making a difference in the world. Pope Francis' life has been exemplary in precisely the type of personal witness that the new evangelization calls for. He becomes a model for millions of Catholics around the world today. Francis, the Pope from the New World. Wow. I'm telling you, it's amazing. There will be uh, links again in the show notes over at catholicfoodie.com so that you can find easily and quickly uh, access to that documentary. So that is the faith and the news today. And now we're going to move on to the Around the Table, where we'll talk about the importance. Like, what is it all about, really? You know, Dinner Lab's And Supper Clubs is the title of this episode. What is it all about? And we'll talk about that in just a moment. Oh, you gotta taste this! This is, oh, it's got this kind of mm, burning, melty, it's not really a smoky taste. It, it, it's a certain, oh, it, it's kind of like a, you know, it's got like this boom, zap kind of taste. Don't you think? What, what would you call that flavor? Lightning y? Yeah. It's lightning y! Oh, we gotta do that again! Okay, when the next storm comes, we'll go up on the roof. I know what this needs. Saffron. A little saffron would make this. Saffron. Why do I get the feeling it's, it's in, in the, the kitchen. kitchen? Now, you know, I think that uh, just the kind of uh, uniqueness, almost secretive club <laughs> uh, aspect of Dinner Lab is something that appeals to me, of course. But there's something more to it than just that. You know, one thing I talk about a lot is is getting around the table. Uh, matter of fact, the radio show that I do in Baton Rouge and New Orleans on Fridays is called Around the Table, and we talk about that because there's something inherent, there's something deep down inside of us that draws us to communion to, to, to God. God made us this way, and we find communion with, e with each other and with God around the table. The Eucharist, of course, is the shining example there, the, 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 the best example of unity, of communion around a table. You also see it in the Old Testament with the, the Passover meal, right? And, and several other times, covenant meals in general, were like that, where you had communion taking place, the people of God communing with each other and and with God. So we experience communion with each other around the table. As Monsignor Nalti has said many times on the Around the Table Food Show, 
being around the table is one of the only times in life, in our daily lives, that we are actually face-to-face with someone else for an extended period of time where we can actually talk. You don't have that at Mass because normally we're all facing one way. We're facing the altar, and so you just see the backs of people's heads. And even when you're at work, you're sitting across from a desk maybe or your door's closed or you're in a cubicle. You're not really communicating with people face-to-face. But when you're around the table, that's what it's all about. It's all about being there with the people that you love, people that you care for, and, and it's just a beautiful thing. And unfortunately, it's something that is challenged today in our, in our, our, our world because we're so busy. And our culture does not support family life in general and certainly doesn't support um, gathering together regularly around the table. Life is just too chaotic. So when you look at something like Dinner Labs, it's interesting. I, I, I think about this from time to time. You know, when you talk about growing in relationships with people, there's always an activity. Um, and I read this years ago, and I can't remember the source, I don't recall, but I do remember being very uh, moved by it, or not, not, not in an emotional way, but just in, a, in an existential way. I was like, yes, they got it. That, it, that's right, absolutely. And as someone who taught kids in high school, I worked with teenagers for years and years, it was very important, it was a very important insight for me because it enabled me to kind of help my students to see and understand how relationships work. And, and what I'm referring to here, I read something, it was something along the, along the lines of this. If you want to grow in relationship, let's just say a father and son as an example. If a father and son wants to, they want to really grow in their relationship, they want to deepen their relationship, they want to get closer together, they wouldn't just go into a room and sit across from each other and just stare at each other. Right? It's not necessarily about looking at each other or even talking each other to death. Wouldn't do it. We need a medium. We need something to, to, to kind of help facilitate the growth in relationship, to kind of bridge the gap, so to speak. And, and that medium typically is an activity. You go outside and you throw the football together. You, you build a model train or, or plane or something like that together. You, you, act, you can do work in the yard together. You could cook in the kitchen together, but you're doing something together. There's a bridge there. There's something to kind of help bridge the gap, bring you together, and that is what helps you to grow in the relationship with each other. Same thing when you're dating. You don't just sit there and stare at each other in a vacuum, right? You're, you do stuff together. When you go on dates, you go to a movie, you go to dinner, you talk about the movie, you have to have something to do. It's not just being together, especially in the beginning, right? You have to have something to do. And that's what I think happens around the table a lot of times. Supper clubs are a good example of this. You have a bunch of friends. And I know supper clubs were real big when uh, I was a kid, right? For for adults, they would have uh, uh, supper clubs they'd be a part of. They go, you know, parents may go once a month or whatever, get together with some of their friends and they would cook or one of the couples would cook, whatever it may be, and they would alternate turns. So supper clubs were real big back then. I think they're kind of coming around now. You got a lot of folks out here who are part of supper clubs or, or an eat club or, or something like that. And the dinner lab is similar, right? It's similar. Uh, the point is you're, you're coming together. I guess you'd say the bridge, in a sense, is the food, right? Because you're a foodie, perhaps. You, you like to cook, maybe. And, and, and so that's the excuse to get together. But 
the real deal, what it's really about, are the relationships, and you're sharing the food. And I think that's what's make, what, that, that's what really makes Dinner Lab something that appeals to me. Because you're getting together with people, maybe 75 people at a, at a dinner party. You get to rub elbows. And there may be people there you know. You may invite and bring people with you. I don't know. But you have people who are there for a common interest, the food. And that food around that table provides the bridge necessary for interaction, for people to connect on a relational level and to really grow and to, for friendships to develop and for networking to happen and for all that good stuff. That's what life is all about. And that is what really intrigues me about Dinner Labs or Dinner Lab and Supper Clubs too. <laughs> but Dinner Lab is what I'm talking about uh, at the moment. And it's interesting too because just this past week I discovered a book that was written I think back in 2004 if I'm not mistaken or the early 2000s. Uh, It's called uh, Life is Meals. It's a food lover's book of days by James and Kay Salter. And this book is fascinating. It's It's not only their own thoughts. It's stuff they've collected over the years too because they've been cooking and having dinner parties uh, for years and years and years, going back to like the, the 70s. Um, and so they do share some of that stuff with us in this book, but they also share quotes they found interesting from other people about food and about cooking and about sharing meals. Um, it, and they have had just the first few pages that I've read, some gems. And matter of fact, on page 12, one of the first, actually, I think it was the first entry this is what it says. I, it blew me away because I'm, I'm going, yes, again, you know, yes. This is what it says. This is a quote here. The meal is the essential act of life. It is the habitual ceremony, the long record of marriage, the school for behavior, the prelude to love. Among all peoples and in all times, every significant event in life, be it wedding, triumph or birth is marked by a meal or the sharing of food and drink. The meal is the emblem of civilization. What would one know of life as it should be lived or nights as they should be spent apart from meals? And that was on page 12. That was the first entry uh, from this book, which I just find so awesome and so fascinating. There's going to be a link in the show notes, by the way, to the book. I think it's available on Amazon.com. If you click the link in the show notes, you also, uh, Amazon will throw a few pennies my way for sending you to them, uh, but it doesn't cost you anything extra. You still get the great deal, the great price from Amazon. Amazon just sends me a few pennies to thank me for sending you their way. So that was great. And I love that quote. And then just a few pages later, I think on page 18, they continued this whole thought about the importance of meals and said, Primitive man did not eat at certain hours, but simply when hungry. Gradually, a regularity developed. Families and clans ate together, and in fact, for ages, most eating was communal. Wow, that's something that we talk about here at the Catholic Foodie and on the Around the Table Food Show quite a bit. They continue, they say, food is closely interwoven with religion, the sacrifice of animals, the blessing of fields, the Eucharist, the traditional feasts, and and it has been crucial to medicine, which for centuries was based on dietary principles. In its wake, food has sown cities, formed politics, and been at the root of prosperity or war. The most important human relationships are all celebrated with or nourished by the sharing of food. Even death is marked 
by the serving of food and drink. Wow, that is so true. And I think it gets, that's what, I get so excited about this, folks, because it gets to the very heart, the very root, the very heart of who we are as human beings and how we relate to each other and with God. And yes, we can look back at the Eucharist and say that that is the, 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 the summit, right? The source and summit of our faith. We can look at that and say, yes, our, our family meals in some way, shape, or form are a type or a symbol of the Eucharist. But it goes back even further than that. The Eucharist itself was signified or, or, or prefigured even in the Old Testament. So you see, you go way back to Genesis and you see where this, this desire for communion was put into us by God and how it happens around a table. So it's not, there's, there's no surprise that God comes to us in communion around the table of the altar. It makes such perfect sense, especially if you go back and read Genesis and read the Exodus. It makes sense because of that. It's a beautiful thing, folks, beautiful things. And we will be talking more about this as we go on with this podcast, The Catholic Foodie, and in other ways as well. I may may tell you a little bit more about that sometime in the near future. In the meantime, though, it's time to get to your calls and questions. We do have some voice feedback today, so I'll be back in just a moment. When you come to my house and I cook for you. Okay. Oh, uh, yeah, that might be a problem. What's the problem? I'm the best cook in the family, tell you. Oh, I did, didn't I? Twice. Okay, then. <laughs> oh. um, it's just, uh, yeah. Ian is a vegetarian. He doesn't eat meat. He don't eat no meat? No, he doesn't eat meat. What do you mean he don't eat no meat? Oh, that's okay. That's okay. I make lamb. <laughs> my big fat Greek wedding. I love that movie. Oh my gosh. It's awesome. Hi, Jeff. It's Craig from Vancouver, British Columbia calling. Just uh, saw some of your posts over there at Facebook and also at CatholicFoodie.com about the Thai cooking. Last week, I did my Thai cooking and did my cravings for it. So uh, I went and got the stuff, made some nice uh, pad Thai. Also made some nice um, curry or Thai chicken with the with the coconut milk and the nice red curry paste and that served that over a nice jasmine rice, and I also made some spring rolls too. Had the kids in the kitchen help me roll those nice spring rolls too. It was it was great. We love our Thai cooking every now and then. A little bit of spice in there. It's beautiful. Right now in Vancouver, uh, it's fall and it is wild mushroom season. Believe it or not, so. There's tons of chanterelles that are growing out there in the forest. I have a friend that has uh, been in the wild mushroom business for years and learned from his dad and his grandfather and that, so they know what they're doing because it's very, uh, very, very important that uh, you're eating the right mushrooms when it comes to wild mushrooms. But uh, I got some chanterelle mushrooms there and made a little nice uh, white wine sauce. Actually, I threw in a splash of champagne that I had left over. Serve that over chicken, and it was fabulous. And that still have some mushrooms left, so I might do another sauce for some pasta too. But these are uh, great things that uh, we can have during the fall season, and you know, eating nice and local too, which is important too. So, thanks for the podcast. Really been enjoying them, and uh, keep up the good work. God bless. Oh, Craig, thank you so much. Uh, that was Craig Poirier, a friend of mine up uh, from up north. <laughs> 
And yes, you're right. You have to be very careful with those wild mushrooms. I don't know a thing about them. I like going to the store, to the market, and and letting people who do know about it sell them to me. Because, <laughs> you know, you can get really sick if you eat the wrong things. Uh, but, you know, you mentioned the Thai food. And yes, we love to make uh, curry. We love curry in this house and and uh, love making, uh, we, we do a, a, a Thai chicken and coconut soup, which kind of incorporates curry, actually, and, and, and a few other spices that are along the lines of, of, a, of Thai cuisine. Uh, but, you know, this past week, I have to tell you, this past week was uh, my anniversary. Our, Char and I have been married for 15 years. We just celebrated our anniversary a couple of days ago. And we did two two nights of celebrating. Uh, the first night we went to uh, a restaurant which is just down the street from us called Sala Thai, and uh, we had curry, of course, and also some spicy Thai fried rice that would just knock your socks off. This was so delicious. It was so good. The food there is always so fresh. Matter of fact, if I'm not mistaken, some of the uh, the herbs that they get that they use, they they have family who live in Texas who actually grow some of these herbs and and every I don't know if it's every week I guess it's every week they make a trip they meet each other halfway and and they get some of those herbs from their family and they use that in the restaurant that's just beautiful it's awesome um, so it, the food is always so fresh uh, our waitress the other night told us that they have new chefs in the kitchen they've only been there I think for a few weeks but man they, they knocked it out the park it's it was uh, a beautiful beautiful um meal that we had. And it was interesting, too, how it played out because for some reason, their liquor license had had not been renewed. They needed, they're still working on paperwork or whatever to get that renewed. And so at least that night that we were there, they couldn't sell alcohol, but they would allow you to bring your own in if you wanted to. And there was no corkage fee. So we have a grocery right down the street, like three blocks, four blocks away, I ran over there, got a bottle of wine, came back, and we were able to have wine with our meal uh, at no charge. I mean, that <laughs> was kind of neat, a neat little thing to, to have happen. Uh, but it was a, a fantastic meal. The the, the spring rolls, the, we did the, the crispy fried uh, spicy Thai spring rolls. Wow, those were just so crisp, so fresh. Uh, it had that, of course, that, that crunch, right? You have that crunch on the outside. It's that, the, the crispy fried spring rolls, but it was just soft and delicious on the inside. Love those. And we also had, what else? We had a, a soup, and I'm trying to think right now what we had. Which Oh, I know what it was. It was the, the shrimp, the Tom Yum Goong, I believe they, they, they pronounce it that way. Uh, the shrimp, Thai shrimp soup. Always love that. Always love that. There's something about it. It's very almost medicinal. You feel like you're getting healthy as you eat it. <laughs> it was, it's just so good. So we had the curry. We had the, um, the, 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 the a kind of a combo of the spicy Thai fried rice. We had pork in it. It had beef and it had shrimp. It was so good. And, uh, and then the next night, I really wanted, as a matter of fact, that, that first night, my original intention was to cook for my wife. Uh, but schedule didn't allow it. Uh, we just had too many things going on. The kids had um, uh, activities in different parts of, of, actually in two different cities, believe it or not, towns. They're kind of close together, but still a lot of time on the road. So we didn't, we didn't get to do that on our anniversary. Instead, uh, the next night, uh, my girls had gymnastics and they had a church function to go to. So my son was here with us. 
But when my wife was out, she was driving the kids around. What I did is I went out on the porch. We have this uh, glass top table on the porch, and I, I set it up very nice. It's a four top. Set it up very nice, you know, cleaned it, make sure it was all dust free, set the table, candle in the middle, you know, with our china and, and uh, silver. And uh, I did everything I could to make it right. I did made a little salad and had some boiled shrimp. And I went and picked up some steamed lobsters. And we had a little lobster feast right there with my son donning my chef's coat. He was our waiter for the evening. We had a little bottle of uh, Malbec. I think it was Santa Julia was the label. Malbec from uh, Argentina. And... um, it was delightful. The weather was great. It was very mild, about 65 degrees outside, more or less. And uh, it was just absolutely delightful. And, you know, lobster goes back with us to the beginning because on our honeymoon, we had lobster several times. We're on, we're in Mar- on, on Margarita Island, Venezuela, for two weeks for our honeymoon. And we had lobster uh, a number of times while we were there. And one day in particular just stands out. I've got pictures. Matter of fact, I'll probably put a picture in the show notes over at catholicfoodie.com. But in, 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 in uh, Venezuela, off the coast of Venezuela in Margarita Island, they have these spiny lobsters, which are about twice the size of what we're used to here in the States with uh, the, the, the main lobsters, right? These are, these are like four or five pounds, six pound lobsters. They're huge. They're massive. And typically when you order a lobster there, you just get one and they split it literally down the middle from head to tail, down the middle. And uh, each each half is served on, on a plate. And I've got pictures over at catholicfoodie.com in the show notes for that. But And you can see what I look like with hair too. <laughs> you ought to go check that out, catholicfoodie.com. And it, it was delightful. And so when, when the anniversary was coming up, it was 15-year anniversary. When that was coming up, I kept thinking to myself, you know what? I want to do lobster. It's just reminiscent of, of the honeymoon. And uh, I was able to do it. And I did it here at home on the patio. It was awesome. We had a great time. It was It was a lot of fun. My son was just so funny. But also, he took his job very seriously, and he did a great job serving us at table. And of course, as a tip, I I got him his own lobster, so he got to eat after we did. (laughs) And he had a lot of fun, too. All right, folks, we got one more segment here of the show. We're wrapping things up quickly here. The last segment has to do with uh, recipes and cooking tips, and I've got one of each for you today, and I'll be back in just a minute. I need two salmon, three salad compassion, and a free fillet. Larry, two others, seal salmon. Free fillet, working. I need plates. Well, the other day, a friend of mine uh, here on the North Shore in Mandeville, Eleanor Batson, sent a link. Uh, or actually tagged me in a uh, post on Facebook, along with my wife and a few other people. And what she had to share was, wow, it was so helpful, so practical. I wanted to share with you today. And it's basically, if you have a lot of garlic that you need to peel and you want a fast way to peel that garlic, this is a trick that I had never thought of before. I never knew about this. But when Eleanor posted this little video, I thought, oh, I'm going to use this. (laughs) 
<laughs> we love garlic in this house. And sometimes, especially on the holidays, we've got things coming up. We're going to be cooking big dishes, right? Lots of lots of cooking going on for Thanksgiving and, and, and Christmas too. And so we're, we, we, I can certainly use this technique. Listen to this video. Check out an easy way, fast and easy way to peel an entire head of garlic in less than 10 seconds. Let's face it, peeling garlic is a pain in the ass. It gets under your fingernails, it takes forever to pull the cloves apart. I'm gonna show you how to peel garlic in less than 10 seconds. First, take a head of garlic, you hit it with the heel of your hand to open up the cloves, grab two bowls. Metal bowls. Put the garlic into the bowl, invert the lid over the top, and then shake the dickens out of it. And voila, all of your garlic is peeled. For more tips and recipes, go to subver.com. Yep, yep. It works. Believe me, it works. The other day, I, I, when I first heard about this, I was like, oh, no way. Really? Oh, wow. How come I never thought about this before? And so what I did is uh, I, I was making a salad that evening. I was using probably six cloves of garlic in the dressing. And I, because I'm making a bigger dressing. Anyway, I decided to take them and put them. I didn't have, a, I don't have two metal bowls like that. But what I do have uh, are plenty of glass jars. And I had a, a glass jar, a big glass jar that from uh, from honey. It was an old honey jar with a lid. And so I thought, ah, oh, let me just give it a try. Threw the garlic in there, uh, six cloves, twisted the lid on it, closed it up, shook it. And guess what? In about 10 seconds, I had peeled garlic. <laughs> it was pretty it was pretty cool. So uh, I just had to, to, to take that, put it into my mortar and pestle and go to town on it in the mortar and pestle. And uh, it did definitely speed up the process and, and, and it, it works, you know, it works. Matter of fact, I told my wife the next morning because she was out when I did that. I told Char the next morning, I said, yeah, I used that little method with this uh, jar and it worked. And she goes, no way, really? I said, yeah. She goes, oh, i got to try that. So here we are at breakfast having coffee, and she goes and gets a couple of cloves of garlic and throws them in the, in the jar just to shake them up and see if it works. And it did, of course, it did. So uh, that is a wonderful tip, especially if you like garlic like we do and you cook big for Thanksgiving and for Christmas. Now, the next uh, tip that I have here is a tip slash recipe. This is from Alton Brown. I've been listening to the Alton Brown cast a lot lately. I don't know if you are familiar with that. Uh, Alton Brown, who is, you know, everybody knows Alton. He um, was the host, the mastermind behind the Food Network uh, show Good Eats, which I think ran for... 11 or 12 seasons. I, I can't remember the, the exact number, but it ran for, for a while. And now, you know, now he does other kind of you know, hosting gigs for Food Network. But he has started his own podcast. I guess it's been several months now. He's had Bobby Flay on as a guest. He's had Jada De Laurentiis as a guest. He's had so many other people as guests. He has not had me as a guest, uh, but, but he's had other people. And it's fascinating. 
Alton has the personality, he has the brain, he has the knowledge, he's got, just got everything. And I'm just always so fascinated listening to what he has to say. And he was doing a, just the most recently, just a couple days ago, probably two or three days ago, uh, he was doing a show and it was about um, Thanksgiving, kind of getting ready for Thanksgiving. Everything but the birds. We're talking about appetizers, we're talking about sides, we're talking about dessert, we're talking about everything but the turkey. And he went on at one point about turkey gravy, making gravy for Thanksgiving. And uh, he had a lot to say. I love the episode overall, but he referred to a video. He said, look, if you want to know how to make the perfect gravy, Google this. And he, he gave a search string, something like uh, Thanksgiving turkey gravy Alden Brown, something like that. And so I Googled that, and this is what came up. Hey, fella, that's a nice looking turkey. But hey, hey, you're not gonna carve that right now, are you? Before you've made the, you know what? Oh, come on, no gravy? For shame. Please, tell me you didn't wash the roasting pan. Oh, well, thank goodness for that. Come on, let's hit the gravy. Place that roasting pan over medium heat using two burners if the pan is big enough. Then, as soon as it's hot, deglaze the bottom with 24 ounces of reduced or low sodium chicken broth and eight ounces of red wine. As the liquid boils and reduces, scrape the bottom to loosen and dissolve any flavorful bits that may be stuck there. Then, pour the liquid into a fat separator, also called a gravy separator, uh, which is a device that you really ought to have if gravy is something that you plan on making. It will allow the fat to separate out to the top where, of course, it naturally wants to go. And then you can pour out the flavorful liquid from below. Now, since we are going to save that, we'll just pour that off into a waiting measuring cup. Watch out. Just, yeah, there you go. There, you just have the fat. Of course, a little bit of the liquid will remain, and that'll uh, hiss when it hits the uh, still hot pan. But that's okay. So, fat goes into the pan. Now, as for the thickening agent, we will uh, add one-third of a cup of plain old all-purpose flour. And you're going to want to whisk that like crazy. Now, coating the flour granules with fat will keep the gravy from lumping, and the heat will cook out that raw cereal flavor. Got it? All right, keep whisking until that mixture starts to smooth out and thicken just a little bit. Good. There, now bring the reserved liquid into play and continue whisking. As that comes to a boil, those uh, flour granules will gelatinize, thus thickening the liquid. There you have it. Now, finish that up with a tablespoon of fresh herbs like thyme, rosemary, oregano, or any combination thereof. Now remember, the gravy, which looks pretty good now, see, coats the back of a spoon. That's called nappe, don't you know? Now this is going to go into a, a gravy boat. You'll probably want to pull it when it's still a little bit on the loose side because as it cools, it is going to thicken a little bit. But if you're really a gravy fan, you'll skip the gravy boat altogether and simply go with a nice big thermos. Uh, sure, your, your dining room will look a little bit like a construction site, but hey, that's the price of cuisine. Now, when it comes time to serve, some people pour directly onto the bird and carve. Some like it on the, hey, what are you doing there, fella? No, no, tell me you are not going to, oh my, the humanity. No, I'm telling you, as your cardiologist, you can't, oh, that's a gravy aficionado. <laughs> he just uh, drank a shot glass full of gravy. Anyway, fantastic recipe, though, and, and very, um, very helpful. And I'm going to put this video, of course, in the show notes over at CatholicFoodie.com. makes it easy for you to find it. Uh, it's awesome because he makes a little roux, 
and of course we make roux a lot here in South Louisiana with gumbos and, and whatnot. Uh, but this is just a very light roux, a light colored roux, in order to uh, to, to to thicken up the the, the natural juices. From the turkey, and matter of fact, um, my wife and I have been talking about making these special uh, turkey pot pies from Louisiana Kitchen and Culture magazine, and uh, turkey gravy is one of the ingredients, so I guess I will be using this recipe real soon, in just about a week or so, uh, for Thanksgiving. Well, that's about it, folks. We have come to the end of another episode of The Catholic Foodie. I hope you had a good time. I certainly did. And, uh, you know, you can call and leave feedback just like Craig did earlier. I would love to hear from you. I can play that feedback here on the show. If you have a question about food, a recipe, cooking, a cooking tip, anything like that, you can always call in those questions. Uh, If you you just want to talk to us about uh, what's going on in your kitchen, what you've been cooking lately, I'd love to hear that, too. You can give me a call at 985 685-4974, 685-635-4974. I would love to hear from you. Just uh, call that number. You leave a message, and that voice message I can play right here on the show. So I'd love to hear from you. Give me a call, 985-635-4974. And until next time, bon appétit.